Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, joined by the other mayor. James Hinchcliffe is our guest today. James, thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. I feel a little bit guilty here because I'm a big listener, of course, to Off Track. So I don't want it to make you seem like you're cheating on Tim Durham and Alexander Rossi by doing this podcast. Not at all. Not at all. All right. I appreciate that because I know it was, uh, I'm really looking forward to this week's episode because obviously we're coming off of Alexander Rossi's big win. And I'm sure there are all sorts of tales of, well, maybe not debauchery involving you because you had to work this weekend, but maybe Tim and Alex <laughs> got down. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, based on the, his lack of enthusiasm in the winter interview, maybe he didn't <laughs> even celebrate. I'm not sure. You never know with him. All right. Well, I encourage everybody to check out Off Track this week. You can find it where you get podcasts. It's always an entertaining listen and certainly will be after an Alexander Rossi victory. And especially if he has a new dolphin tattoo. So you should go <laughs> listen to Hinch on that podcast after you listen to this one. But first, again, great to have you here and a big weekend for not only NASCAR and NBC, but IndyCar and NBC as well. We just came out of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course doubleheader race weekend uh, where there was crossover at the Brickyard, not just for NASCAR and IndyCar, but for yourself and Dale Earnhardt Jr. So we, I think we got a sense of what crossover is like for IndyCar and NASCAR, but what's it like being a TV analyst doing two different series on, I guess, really three consecutive days, two consecutive days with races? Yeah, no, it was it was awesome. I, you know, obviously this weekend is so cool having IndyCar and NASCAR running together at the same weekend. And uh, it was kind of, for, for me, one of the positive things that came out of the whole pandemic. You know, we started this back in, in 2020, I think almost out of necessity, but the fact that it's uh, it's carried on and, I, I think it's growing. I mean, just based on the crowd sizes we saw this weekend, I think it's kind of slowly getting better. And uh, the the way that certainly the cup guys race on uh, on road courses is always entertaining, never never short of excitement. So for me to get to kind of you know do double duty was was great. You know, we did obviously the IndyCar race on Saturday uh, early afternoon, and then I had a pretty short turnaround for the start of the uh, the Xfinity race where I was up in the booth with with Rick, Jeff, and Steve, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then, yeah, did, did some work with Jeff again and, and then DJ during the, during the cup race on Sunday. So I got a, a little taste of it all, but it was, it was a lot of fun. What is it like you're in the same booth, right? And you're working with many of the same people in the truck, but is the cadence different? Is the rhythm different? Is it different hearing somewhat different voices in your ear or the way things, the, the rhythm goes? Yeah. It's funny because, you know, the, the core job is the same, you know, you're, you're watching the race and you're 
explaining to the people listening what's happening, but the differences are also huge. You know, first off, we had four people in the booth, which isn't even normally what they do. I was I was a bonus, you know, add-in. So just getting used to the cadence of having four people. We use the same physical booth, but they have different equipment. So it, even little things like the talk back boxes are different. The headsets are different. Huh. And then of course the timing and scoring screens are different. NASCAR uses a different system than IndyCar. And so having to kind of get just kind of used to where everything is, how it sits, you know, after having done three quarters of the IndyCar season one way, and that was really my only experience doing this, you're thrown in a new environment and, and yeah, there's some things to get used to, but at the end of the day, everyone in there was so great and so helpful. All three of those guys up in the booth were, uh, were super great about getting me kind of up to speed and I uh, had to do a little extra research on, uh, you know, on the, the couple of days building up to the weekend to get my Xfinity knowledge a little, little sharper to be up in the booth. But uh, no, I mean, it was, I think we got a, a nice cadence pretty early and we found uh, a way to make it work. I thought it was, I thought it was good. Yeah. The reviews I thought were uh, fantastic. Very, very strong. And I'm sure that was partially due to your research. Like how do you do research? Cause obviously you've raced in IndyCar, you know, all those guys like back of your hand. I see you walking around the paddock. It's just a matter of just going up and talking to people. But when you're parachuting into a series, you don't really know. Did you try to make rounds in the garage? I'm sure that would be difficult because you don't really know people. You just study stats. Do you look at the research? Like, how do you do it? Yeah. So the, the hard part was I didn't really get the opportunity to get down to the garage because IndyCar was the same day. And, you know, right. it's kind of a, a, a difficult weekend. If it had just been a standalone, you know, NASCAR weekend, it, it would have been a little bit different. But luckily, you know, we have a, a group that does an incredible amount of, of research and builds a stat pack for each race, for each series. And so I was given all that information and kind of just spent time pouring through as much of that as I could and kind of getting up to speed on on, on some of the topics and some of the drivers and I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a race fan, so I follow most motorsports anyway. I wasn't coming in with with zero information, uh, but just kind of getting a few specifics. And, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, my position in the booth isn't to just reel off stats at an alarming rate and tell people something they don't know about driver XYZ. It's more to comment on the driving and what we're seeing on track. But it was just for me to, you know, feel comfortable talking about the people that we were uh, we were commentating on. So it was... Uh, from, like I said, big help from from the stats people that put together all that information. And then it's for me just pouring through it and trying to retain whatever I can. Obviously, you, you retain quite a bit because, again, I thought the reviews were strong. Just curious. I'm not trying to break any news here, but obviously the IndyCar season ends a little bit before the NASCAR season. And some people were asking if you might be back. Uh, would you ever consider um, working a NASCAR race again this year or in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of the sport, like I've said. And so anytime spending on a racetrack and, and getting to work with the, the great group at, at NBC, I'm all about it. So I don't know, you know, this, this weekend was kind of always tagged as one to have a little bit of crossover just because of the nature of the weekend. Uh, if that means it leads to more in the future, that'd be great. I'd be happy to do it. That's cool. That's cool. And talking about Hinch, the crossover in general, this was year three of this concept at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Year one, obviously there were no crowds because of the pandemic. Year two, it was a little bit better last year. There was a little bit more intermingling. And then year three, things were fairly wide open. But what I found interesting is, and this might be schedule related, I didn't see a lot of guys sticking around for Sunday. I saw Scott Dixon was hanging around Sunday to watch the cup race, but talking to some of the other IndyCar guys, like, you know, Rossi said he was going to be out on the lake and, you know, God love him. Obviously he's probably got a lot to celebrate. So didn't really need him to stick around the track to watch a cup race after winning his first race in three years. But Renus VK was saying he was going back home to Florida. IndyCar is in the middle of a really brutal stretch right now. So, but, you know, they had 60,000 people there. And I think it was slightly up from last year. So it seemed like, 
from the fan side, it's really, really working, even if maybe on the driver side, we didn't see quite as much, even as if we saw last year. What was your take, I guess, on all of that? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. You know, I think right now the IndyCar group is just in the middle of such a such a tough stretch. We have another race next weekend. And the fact that we had a race on a Saturday and actually gave, whether it was drivers, officials, crew people, whatever, a Sunday off. They haven't had a lot of those, you know, since yeah. kind of March that I can certainly understand the desire to not spend it at a racetrack, regardless of how cool the event was. And so, yeah, I think that probably plays into it quite a bit. But I agree. I mean, I think I saw a tremendous amount of fans show up. It's it's always tough at Indianapolis because it's such a big facility. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, visually it might not look the same from some of the high up shots or whatever. But yeah, when you actually count it out and condense that group, it's it's a, it's a pretty reasonable Sunday crowd. And I think the more we do this and kind of continue this tradition, the more it's going to grow, you know, and obviously the races are pretty exciting. Uh, the IndyCar race was good. The cup race was good. And so, uh, yeah, I, I can see as, as we just continue with the date equity, like we always talk about and and, uh, and make this more of a tradition. I think it'll just keep growing. I went down to uh, spend some time in oval turn four, road course turn one, those viewing mounds in particular was one big hill. I spent the second stage of the Xfinity race there with a friend who had been there since seven in the morning on Saturday. And he said that it was, I mean, it was still a lot of people there at that point, but he said it was particularly packed during the IndyCar race. So it seems like it's gotten some traction and it's well-received. Have you heard any feedback from fans, IndyCar fans who say that they've maybe been exposed to NASCAR and they like it? Yeah, I mean, nothing negative. You know, honestly, I, I really do think that, that motorsports fans are motorsports fans, and you, you might have your preferences here or there, but at the end of the day, racing is racing, right? And so mm -hmm. to be able to go to a racetrack and buy a ticket for a weekend and get three of the top series in North America running all in the same time, it's a hard thing to do. So I think that's a, it's an appealing option for a lot of people. And as if, if you expose IndyCar fans to NASCAR, they're going to find a, a team or a driver that they start to you know, cheer for and, and then want to check in on. And, and likewise, I think NASCAR fans tuning in to see the IndyCar race or who are on property, you know, probably met or heard of or watched, you know, a driver on track that impressed them. So I think all this sort of cross pollination is really good for the sport. Yeah. And we haven't heard yet schedules for next year, but it seems like the rumblings that we are hearing is it's going to be fairly similar in NASCAR and IndyCar. And I'd expect to see them both back uh, together on this weekend next year. But I, we have heard some IndyCar drivers say that they've run the IndyCar, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course a lot since the pandemic. You know, there was 2020 when it seemed like I think they ran there three or four times. Do you think there's ever an opportunity maybe to to take the concept elsewhere? Do you think if they could do that, is something is that something maybe IndyCar and NASCAR should look at? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I think honestly, because IndyCar does already race at the road course, going back there, even though it is several months later, it, it takes some of it away. If I'm honest, I think a doubleheader at another track would probably even be even more successful. To be totally honest, so I would, I would love to see whether it was an oval. Sorry about the noise. It's okay, it's <laughs> oval fine. or a road course. I think this experiment has proved there's a there's an appetite for it and, and other places might be you know like i said even even more receptive to it uh, are those your dogs in the background they're yeah they're clawing okay. pawn at the door okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you need to go get them real quick you can if you no, need I, okay uh, you right. know what let me just remove let me just remove the bells <laughs> okay. Actually, I'm sorry about that Nate. all right no problem at all yeah it wouldn't be a podcast taping with you if there wasn't like some sort of cool interruption <laughs> that's true with uh, your dog or your home. So this is great. Uh, I'm Again, like we were saying before we got started, I'm just glad your internet is, is so sparkly clear. <laughs> it's terrific. So let's talk a little about the race, Sunday's race, Hinch, because it is NASCAR NBC podcast. And I know that you were there in the booth for the first two stages. You got home in time to see the end. 
obviously the, the big topic of discussion is what happened on the final restart. Tyler Reddick wins the race, but Ross Chastain makes this really bold move to go down. NASCAR calls it an access road. I would think of it more of like an escape route. From my understanding, the rule is that NASCAR has told drivers that if you are unable to make turn one, that sweeping right-hander, you can use the access road to avoid going through the grass and then come back out on the track the other side. But they didn't specify any sort of penalty as to what happens in terms of like where you rejoin on the track. So Chastain did this, comes out essentially beside Reddick, uh, gets penalized after the race and knocked down outside the top 20. But his explanation was, well, my understanding of the rule was I thought we could use that access road. I didn't necessarily think we were going to get penalized for it. So a lot to unpack here. I'll just start with, I guess, the obvious. As an IndyCar driver who's been on this course before, is that something you guys ever deal with? Have you ever used that access road? Have you ever seen drivers attempt to do it the way that Chastain did? Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, uh, we've been racing there for a long time. That access road is there because of us. <laughs> you know, yeah. we... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's very easy to, in practice, overshoot turn one when you're trying to find a limit. And they didn't want cars facing, you know, against traffic, trying to get back on the racetrack. So they kind of devised this little scheme to get us back onto the track. And it is an option uh, for us in the races as well. We don't have a lot of five wide situations going into <laughs> turn one. So maybe not as many opportunities to try it. But I think at the end of the day, again, it's always a tough decision, right? Because at least in the IndyCar side of things, they will always give preference to the cars that stayed on track. If you have to take an avoidance maneuver, use a runoff, use a shortcut, whatever, whoever actually managed to complete the corner section on the racetrack will always have preferential treatment when everything gets sorted. So when I look at what happened with Chastain, having not sat in the driver's meeting, having not been part of those conversations, the biggest thought that comes to my mind is intention, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that what looked to me like fairly early in that potential decision-making process, he decides to hammer the throttle right. and go for it. What was the intent there? I, I don't think you can go in essentially fourth and come out essentially in the lead and, and as a driver, go to bed at night thinking that's okay. Yeah. So I was, I was a little surprised by his reaction, if I'm totally honest, after the race. Any IndyCar driver would have 1,000% assumed a penalty of some kind was coming. Maybe he would have even tried to mitigate the damage by not so blatantly making up ground by not going on the racetrack, but that's yeah. just us. <laughs> yeah. Myself, even as a non-driver, that's what caught my eye and maybe took my breath away a little bit. Is this like, you know, 10 feet down that access road, you could, it was very discernible increase in speed. You could tell he just went hammer down on the accelerator and made full commit to this decision. If somebody did that in an Indy car, would it work out the same way? Could you get through that access road and rejoin? Like if you were in that exact same position in an Indy car race, I guess this is totally hypothetical, but could you do it and come out beside the leader the way he did, do you think? Yeah, probably. I think huh. I think sort of the the nature of that section, the geometry of the corner that you're taking on track versus what you get to do, you know, if you take the access road, it's probably similar. Indy cars obviously can corner a little bit quicker than the than the cup cars and so you'd get through the 1-2 section a little faster on track maybe in relation to the difference that you'd see through the access road, but still you wouldn't lose a ton. But again, we've never seen that scenario exactly play out like that. And again, mm -hmm. the, the big thing was I've never seen someone commit to the throttle. Normally, it's you're on the brakes, you're trying to slow it down, you start to turn in, you realize it's not going to work. And you, he was obviously on the brakes at some point, but very early committed to just accelerating aggressively back towards the access road. So 
But yeah, I, I do think that scenario was plausible to happen in IndyCar for sure. But IndyCar drivers might not be as brazen about it. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, it's again, I don't, I don't, I haven't asked Ross what his intentions were. Uh, they seemed pretty clear, but yeah. uh, I think if there's more, but there's certainly a precedent in IndyCar. We have other sections of racetrack and, and other other circuits where this type of thing can happen. You know, Portland Turn One Two is the obvious one that we talk about a lot, and there's just a lot of a lot of precedent for. Hey, look, if you go off the racetrack, you are second priority by a mile. Mm-hmm. Your best your best case scenario is being reordered to where you were going into that corner where the incident happened that you were trying to avoid. I think the thing about the other thing about the deal with Chastain was nothing had happened yet. You know, there wasn't a blockage in front of them. There wasn't spinning cars. There wasn't someone that had launched it. Like from how IndyCar has officiated incidents like this in the past, I think those are the factors, right? What was the intention? What was the outcome? Was it necessary when the decision was made? All those sorts of things. So yeah, I think I'd be very surprised to see an IndyCar driver attempt that and not assume that something was coming down the pipeline. Yeah. And obviously you guys race a lot more on those types of circuits where you're used to addressing uh, situations like this. And obviously that was a big post-race discussion in NASCAR was it, what will they do to sort of clarify this for next year? You know, what could they do to address it? And one thing that I saw kind of tossed out there, and I don't know if this is true, like at a Portland or maybe to other street courses, aren't there in some instances where you guys have those like escape routes, access roads, where they put down like cones that you guys have to kind of weave through and things like that? Yeah, exactly right. And, and that would ultimately be the solution is make taking the access road slower than staying on track. And right. it's got to be enough that it's a real deterrent and you only would take it quite literally to avoid, you know, race ending damage kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because, in a, you know, in a side by side restart, sometimes three wide restart through one and two there, you're obviously going quite a bit slower than you would be at normal race pace. So it has to be at least slow enough that even on a restart side by side cold tires it's still going to take you longer to get back and merge on track than it would if you stayed on track and so it's it's a live you learn scenario like you say this is not a scenario they have a lot on the on the tracks that that cup's been road racing at and so i think i think you live you learn i mean i guess i guess you got to give them credit because they didn't say there was going to be a penalty so go for it um <laughs> but also like I'm okay that he went for it. It was the reaction, the, like the shock that he was somehow like unjustly attacked with this penalty that I, I found a little bit strange. Yeah, I don't think you're the only person who found that a little bit bizarre. That's something Ross has faced a few times here in the past couple of years, but that's sort of also what makes Ross Chastain a fun personality as well. So <laughs> you mentioned it, Hinch. You've kind of gotten to see NASCAR on a road course here and maybe were amused or sort of interested, intrigued by how it's probably a lot different than what you see. I mean, IndyCar races the majority of its races by far on street and road courses, four ovals this year, five oval races as a, in a 17 race schedule, I believe. So what did you make of what you saw yesterday with NASCAR on the road course? There was a lot of hand wringing afterward in the NASCAR industry about that drivers were over the line. Alex Bowman's crew chief, Greg Ives said that his seven-year-old races go-karts better than what he saw yesterday. That probably had something to do with the fact that Bowman was involved in one of these crashes that got triggered by guys being really, really aggressive. But what did you make of how drivers and stock cars uh, raced that place? Look, I mean, I think anytime you get racing drivers on a, on a racetrack, there's a potential for it all to go south. You know, that many competitive minds all working towards one goal. I go back to the Nashville IndyCar race last year when as a group, I think we did a, a horrific job at putting on an exciting motor race. 
we were driving into each other left, right, and center, two red flags. I mean, very uncharacteristic of, of that series, but it happens. So you look at the tone in the, in the paddock in the garage, you know, before the race was that passing was going to be very difficult uh, once everyone's strung out. And so there just is that much more urgency on, on starts and restarts to try to make some brave move happen. I think that there's probably some lessons to be learned there from a lot of drivers that you can still make passes happen if you, you know, save your tires the right way, and learn the racecraft of specifically that track. It's a pretty unique place and how many kind of switchback sections there are that can really set up. And we saw some great side-by-side battles, so we know it's possible. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and criticize the cup field for their driving. That's, I mean, they're all yeah. professionals and any professional has been in a situation where, where someone not in the car could do that from the outside. But, you know, for me, it was more fascinating seeing so clearly for me, the different strategies play out that are a lot more common, I think, in the open wheel world than what at least I've noticed traditionally in stock car racing on road courses. You know, the way that Blaney was able to save fuel and tires and and really try to make that two-stop strategy work, I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And and I think, and frankly, I mean, huge credit to him. I said on the broadcast with DJ, I mean, a massive props to, to Blaney for what he did as a driver that stint. You know, it wasn't what you normally get celebrated for in a, in a cup car on a road course, which is maybe, you know, a little bump and run, a little side by side, whatever it was. Yeah. He was all by himself, but he was hitting the fuel number. He was making those tires last at a track. It's very difficult to do for me on road courses. These are, uh, these are new skill sets for a lot of these drivers. And as someone that has, has to do that a lot in an Indy car, it has had to do that a lot in Indy car. That for me was really fascinating to watch. And, and I think you're seeing the kind of evolution of, strategies and and driver skill sets for cup drivers on road courses so I, th- I thought it was great i had the same reaction when i was mulling it this morning i was like maybe we need blacks and reds in nascar and uh as you said hit the fuel number i mean that's what you hear all the time in indycar i, I think strategy races in indycar great blaney on that fuel only stop kind of showed maybe there's a an avenue for that in nascar i don't know yeah i mean the the, the multi-tire strategy works in formula one it works in indycar It'd be great to see it implemented in NASCAR. Those are normally the best races in IndyCar when, mm-hmm. you know, one of the compounds has some massive degradation or some massive speed delta and, and you've just got to survive your stint on those. But yeah, and I, and I think about how much more information we have on our dashboards in an IndyCar compared to a stock car and the telemetry going back to the pit stand versus, you know, the two series. So for me, I mean, Blaney's accomplishment was all the more impressive as a result of how much less information, you know, you're given in real time. And Tyler Reddick certainly had uh, an impressive result as well. Uh, Wins his second cup race of his career, second cup race this season, second cup race in the past month. And what's interesting, most interesting about it is it comes almost three weeks after he announced he's not going to be racing for Richard Childress Racing after 2023, that he's signed this deal that's going to take effect in 2024. So he's essentially racing as a lame duck, so to speak, for the next year and a half. And he also disclosed after his win that he hadn't spoken to Richard Childress in nearly three weeks until yesterday when he won this race, which might sound fairly familiar to someone in the IndyCar (laughs) series recently with Alex Pelot, the reigning series champion, having not talked to Chip Ganassi for three weeks. I know Pelot hasn't won, but I've kind of been amazed that he hasn't imploded. And certainly Tyler Reddick showed yesterday he hasn't imploded. Is there something going on here? Like how are drivers doing this? Were they able to like compartmentalize so much that they can just put aside all of this obvious distraction and still do well on the track? Yeah. I mean, I think it just points to the, to the resolve required to be a top level racing driver, you know, whether it's the cup series, whether it's the IndyCar series as a driver, your whole career coming up, 
you're learning a lot of different things. You're learning how to drive a car. You're learning how to work with engineers and mechanics, but you're also a big part of it. The mental side is learning how to compartmentalize emotions. And it's amazing how a driver can change when that helmet goes on. And it, it's almost like it's Clark Kent into Superman. You know, you're, you're putting that cape on, you put that helmet on and, and nothing else matters. You, you're so hyper-focused on the task at hand that ideally nothing from the outside world is, you know, penetrating your thought process, your mindset when you're in the race car. And so I think both of those guys are, are in unique situations. I think one a little more tenuous than the other, certainly, but at the end of the day, we're still all here to race. And, and when push comes to shove, and like I say, you get in the car, the helmet goes on, the engines fire up, all anybody wants to do is win. And that's the drivers, that's the crew that's supporting them, the engineers that are working with them, and ultimately the owners that, you know, own the cars, whether or not they're verbal, they're verbalizing that, you know, desire to each other or not, that's still always the goal on Sunday. So I think a lot of credit is due to both of those drivers. And it just really highlights the professionalism of doing the physical job of driving the race car. If you want to argue about the professionalism of the decisions they made and some of the, the tactics and strategies on how things were announced, whatever, yeah. fine. But I don't think you can argue about, you know, their, their prowess and their ability on the racetrack. Yeah. Amazed by the mental toughness of Alex Pillow, even though I'm, I'm confused by uh, a lot of the events, like many of us are, and I'll just tell listeners who may be unfamiliar, um, Alex Pillow got sued by Chip Ganassi Racing last week about this, this situation he's in where Chip Ganassi Racing is claiming that they have his services for 2023 and so is McLaren Racing because Alex Pillow essentially assigned a deal with McLaren Racing. Do you have any sense for how you think this Pillow situation will shake out? Oh, God, no. I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I don't think there's quite, I, I quite literally don't think there's a single person that actually knows how this thing's going to play out. There are a lot of people that think they're right and know how it's going to play out in their, in their favor, but it's one of the most unique scenarios I have ever seen. I, at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I do feel to a certain extent for Alex, you know, uh, regardless of, you know, again, the, the strategy behind wanting to move or how it all went down. At the end of the day, he's a driver. He wants to just drive race cars. He wants to give himself the best opportunity to win, the best opportunity for the future, whatever that is. And if he really did want to move, which according to his tweets, he did, whatever the motivation being, you know, for a driver, that's supposed to be a, a fun and exciting, you know, situation. And it all just, it, it, it didn't get to celebrate that, you know, this is now going to be forever, you know, mired by what's happened. And even if he does eventually drive for McLaren next year, whether it's IndyCar or wherever, it'll be a muted celebration. You know, it's always going to hang, especially if he stays in IndyCar and, and races with McLaren, it's always going to be over his head. That's always going to be the story of, you know, him going there. And it would probably take winning a championship together to change the narrative of, of Alex Pillow and, and McLaren racing. And, and that sucks that have to kind of carry around a, a stigma or whatever, you know, for, for your tenure with a team is, uh, is, is not something that, you know, any driver would look forward to. He's an incredible talent. There's no doubt about that. That's why two of the best teams in the series are literally having a tug of war over them. But uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see how first, how the championship plays out over the next four rounds. And yeah, then everyone can grab their popcorn and, and sit by the computer waiting for you to tell us how, how the latest news on the, the rest of it. Yeah, I'll do my best, me and others. How would you handicap the final four rounds of uh, the IndyCar series? Like you mentioned, uh, Nashville is next week. And then we've got Gateway, the final oval, Portland, Laguna Seca. Currently, Will Power has taken over the points lead from Marcus Erickson. But of course, Joseph Newgarden is still lurking there, as well as is Dixon and Lowe. How, how do you see things shaping up? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating battle. I mean, since this point structure came in in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, we've never had this many drivers covered by this this few points with this many races remaining. So it's quite literally the closest championship battle we've had since this point system existed. And when I look ahead at the tracks remaining, if you're talking gateway, I think that's a that's a Penske Palace. You know, whether it's New Garden or Power, I think both have a great shot there. I'd probably tip my hat to New Garden a little bit on that one. And as the guy a little further back in points than than Will or Marcus, that's that could make things interesting coming out of Gateway. Uh, we have Nashville obviously next. Uh, street circuits. I'm gonna I'm gonna tip to the Ganassi and Andretti cars have been more competitive on street circuits. So this could be a place where Marcus could maybe you know take some ground back. Uh, where Dixon could continue to do Dixon things and do this late season charge and Pelot to keep himself in the conversation. So I think Nashville, the advantages to the Ganassi guys, certainly. And then Portland, I think that's a Ganassi track. If you look at how that went down last year, Pelot was pretty dominant there. Uh, again, the Andretti cars are quick. I don't know why Penske's didn't have the, you know, the results there the last few years. So again, that one maybe goes to them. And then Laguna's kind of an open book. I think everyone's been quick at some point or another at, at Laguna Seca, which I think is just going to make the championship that much more exciting. So you have all these drivers that have each in their own way, I think, done an incredible job of getting themselves to this point in the season. You know, you've got Joseph Newgarden, winner bus. You've got power just like taking every second through fifth place on offer. Uh, you know, Marcus, obviously, with the double points, one of the 500, but just being like sneakily consistent every single Sunday, maybe not having the Saturdays he wants, but every Sunday he's there. You know, Pelot has been a little off this year from what we've seen last year, but still very much in the conversation. And then, of course, Scott Dixon. You just yeah. you can never, ever count him out uh, the way he bounced back from uh, from the last, you know, from what happened in the GP and in qualifying and to get up to where he did and. Uh, he's just so good. He's, he got that win in Toronto. He's got a, a decent amount of momentum now and, and you know, he's hungry. So I, I think we're poised for a, a really, really exciting championship finale. Yeah, it's gonna be really hard to call. And like you said, Erickson, uh, Dixon's teammate at Ganassi uh, has the Indy 500 win, the double points win, but he enters this week, Nashville Sunday afternoon on NBC as the defending winner. You said earlier, Nashville was outstanding in terms of the market embracing it and it just being this huge event, star smash street course debut. But as you said, the racing might have left a little bit to be desired. I know they changed the restart zone this year, put it on the famous bridge they go over. Are you expecting uh, to see hopefully as much dramatics in year two, but maybe the racing be a little bit better? Yeah, I, I think certainly the racing will improve. And, and that that comes from, I think every time we go to a new circuit, you know, every driver thinks they're going to be the first one to like figure it out, you know, and find that trick that, that gives them an advantage, even if it only is for that first year. And I think part of that in the race comes from trying to find passing opportunities that people maybe aren't expecting. And as a result, we saw a lot of chaos and collisions and reds and yellows and all sorts. I think people will be a little better behaved this year, just in general, having learned from last year, there are inherent issues with the design of the track in terms of creating possible blockages and situations that could be bad. Not that it's a design issue might be the wrong, wrong way of putting it. It's not an issue with the track. It's how the track is, but there are opportunities. Let's put it that way for those, those accidents to happen and, and maybe have a bigger effect than they would at, at other places. But no, I, I do think we're still going to have a, a cleaner race this year. 
and uh, and definitely with the the restart zone going into turn nine, I think we're going to see a decent amount of action as well. Yeah, I'll certainly be looking forward to that Sunday on NBC. Uh, before I let you go, one more for you, Hinch. In addition to Alex Pelot being this amazing talent whose future is a little bit uncertain, we still are a little bit uncertain about another amazing talent in NASCAR. Kyle Busch is unsigned for next year, and he disclosed over the weekend that it's maybe a little bit far down on his options list, but he would consider racing other series like IMSA, like IndyCar. Obviously, we've seen Jimmy Johnson have success this year on the Ovals, making that transition from NASCAR. What would you think about the idea of maybe Kyle Busch coming to IndyCar and running races and possibly running the 500? I mean, it would be awesome. There's, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a, there's a human being on earth, love him or hate him, that can deny Kyle Busch's talent behind the wheel of a race car. And I would love to see him come run some IndyCar races. I think it'd be a lot of fun for him. I think he would do very well with Jimmy and, and Kurt's experiences or anything to draw off. Uh, and I think he'd enjoy it. You know, if he finds himself in a situation where he's kind of doing an, an Alonzo-esque gap year until, you know, something more, you know, long-term opens up in the NASCAR side. I mean, man, he's, he's got nothing left to prove over there. So why not? I mean, if you've got to take a year, it's not even a year off, it'd be a year doing literally anything he wants because he's Kyle Busch. They would put him <laughs> in anything that he wanted to do. Right. Uh, I think it'd be great. I think it'd be fun for him. And I think it'd be great for the sport. And then, yeah, look at the situation again in, in six months and see if there's, you know, more opportunities for him to return full-time to cup. But if that opportunity existed, I hope that he would entertain it and we'd love to see it. I mean, probably no shortage of offers, right? From teams that oh, would yeah. have 500 one-offs. Oh, yeah. 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 There'd sure. be a lot of, uh, a lot of extra cars that all of a sudden <laughs> appeared at teams <laughs> if his name was all of a sudden in the conversation. I would love to see it. I'm with you on that one. He's the mayor of Hinchtown. You can watch him on IndyCar and NBC, and he'll be part of Nashville broadcast this Sunday afternoon on NBC. So uh, Hinch, thanks again for all the time and insight. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it, bud. We appreciate the mayor of Hinchtown, James Hinchcliffe, for joining us on the NASCAR on NBC podcast. You, of course, can check out his work on NBC and Peacock this season on all the NTT IndyCar Series broadcasts. IndyCar will be racing through the streets of downtown Nashville, Tennessee, this Sunday with broadcast coverage starting at 3 p.m. Eastern on NBC, post-race show on Peacock. And again, definitely go check out his podcast, Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. That's the podcast he co-hosts with Alexander Rossi, and it's also produced and sort of co-hosted by Tim Durham, also known as Thim. Uh, the podcast is worth a listen. It's often very funny, but it's always insightful about racing, and particularly IndyCar, but sometimes NASCAR. So check out Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. If you get the chance, it's available wherever you find podcasts. And a big thanks to NBC Sports Motorsports Manager, Emily Conboy, for helping coordinate James Hinchcliffe as our guest today on the podcast. NASCAR and NBC will be in Michigan this weekend for Xfinity and Cup Series coverage. It begins at 3 p.m. Eastern on both Saturday and Sunday, and both days the races are on USA Network. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. 
we come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.